Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is Sunday, the 7th of February. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary. Thank you very much. So we have a couple of stories we want to go through, mostly uh, related to a little bit of goings-on in the New York Times, some uh, stuff about the, uh, the European Union and Ireland's place on it. But to start with, Michael... I wanted to talk about a uh, new and frankly courageous political position that I saw during the week, Michael. And what was that? It was um, it was from you know Holly Cairns of the Social Democrats. I do enjoy. I think is this the one where Holly came out and she she was she was for good things and against bad things. A revolutionary idea. Yeah, I don't know if that kind of thing. I don't know if Irish politics is ready for that yet. No, Gary. To be honest with you, but Cairns came out. And she was talking about the need for a zero-COVID approach, which is questionable in itself. Although she didn't use the term zero-COVID, I don't think so. And they were talking about Northern Ireland and the problems of the border. And Karen said, well, what we need is cross-border cooperation. And then just kind of, that was that. Anytime someone tried to make a point against it, she just went, well, you know. She started using the phrase political ideology that refuses to save lives to uh, refer to those who disagreed with her. Even when people were trying to say, now, Holly, the Northern Irish border and the hundreds of years of issues there, we have tried to do that. Do you realise this? Yeah, the, the cooperation and getting on together and everybody just being friends has been already suggested. To, to And you, you, it has had some traction, but it has met difficulties as well. It actually reminded me um, kind of of... Um, consultants I know who work for the big four who are mostly like at low level are just really young college graduates who are ground down and spat out pretty quickly most of the time and are told to put together these plans which could be good most likely are not terribly insightful and you read them and they're basically someone who's never had to implement a single thing in their lives going well have you considered doing this incredibly impossible thing that if it worked would be very easy and you sit there and you smile and you go, we did consider it, yes, until we realised it wouldn't work, you fucking idiot. And there was a little bit of that, just a sort of, yes, Holly, that would be fantastic. Now, do you have any ideas about how we might do that? <laughs> yeah. I know I know they say that the strategy is the most important part and a monkey could implement, but that tends to be said by people who work in strategic consulting. Uh. But actually, my, my issue was it with it was not that it was just a silly thing from a party which is very fond of the good things but none of the bad things michael yeah only the good things in fact not even a small bit of the bad things was this uh, political ideology that refuses to save lives because it's either meaningless or every political ideology that exists refuses to save a certain amount of lives i mean for instance michael Think of the amount of people who get hit by cars. This is true. A lot of bad cars out there. Are the Social Democrats saying we'll ban all cars from the road in order I think, to stop deaths? Well, they yeah, might be. I don't, I don't know. I, th- I think that, well, the plan is, I think, certainly by 30, 2030, I think that is actually the plan. I mean, you'd have to get rid of alcohol because people can drink themselves to death. And you'd probably have to... You'd probably have to mandate exercise and... You haven't said anything yet that I don't think that the the Social Democrats would actually be up for voting for. I mean, arguably, Michael, you have to come out against abortion. Against? You might be against abortion, but you'd be for choice. Yeah, but you see, then the thing, Michael, there is that if you let people exercise that choice, 
when you could stop them, you're refusing to save lives. And actually, they'd have to be against euthanasia as well. In fact, they'd probably have to be against letting people die naturally. So we just have to keep people on some sort of medical device indefinitely. Well, it's funny to say, I remember many moons ago talking to a, 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 a political scientist and he said, we're talking about how how you structure you know, these tests to see if somebody's left-wing or right-wing or centrist or whatever. And he said, you know, how people react to statements. And he said, I didn't really, I don't quite get this, but apparently this is widely accepted as an indicator. If you say death is bad, that's considered to be a left-wing or liberal sentiment, that people on the left, progressive people, react more strongly to that, agree more strongly with this, death is bad. So, you know, you may have something there that they may come out against uh, against death. And you know what? I, I, I think there's a, there's a good argument for that as well. But they haven't yet, Michael. They haven't yet come out against death in all of its forms. And until they do, they are, as Karen said, a political ideology that refuses to save lives. You know, you can't do everything overnight, Karen. It takes time. I mean, it was a, just a pretty shameless just attack. And it seemed to kind of work, which is kind, which is pretty worrying because you should just swat it back effortlessly. Shameless, was it shame? Or was it just, shall we say, a bit, oh, well, I have to say something now. It could also be, this is the depth of my political understanding. Well, yeah, also, can we just, just sort that out? What's the problem? I mean, she was talking about a sort of zero COVID approach. It has its own problems as well. So to take a position that there are many arguments against, and simply say that if you don't take this, you're refusing to save lives, doesn't seem to me to be terribly solid. Mm. Particularly considering that zero COVID means effectively entering into a recurrent series of lockdowns pretty much until the disease is eradicated globally, which won't happen. So forever. That's always been their problem, hasn't it? Explaining when we'll be let to actually reopen. This is, yeah, but yeah, that's the, yeah, and in fact, this is a big discussion point at the moment I know in Australia, where they're saying, which has been very, very successful in maintaining, you know, closed borders, heavy lockdowns and all that. But they're now saying, so how do we, how do we get out? And listen, I think there are lots of things we don't understand, and there are many, many things I certainly don't understand. But there does, and it may be making the error of post hoc, prop hoc, just because something happens afterwards it was caused by, or there's kind of causal connection. But there is something that does seem to be that about the capacity to be very successful in a lockdown and to maintain it at one level. When other people are going through a bad period, then when you open up, you suddenly get mortified. We talked before some months ago about the, the peculiar success of Slovakia and Czechia in keeping their numbers down. They were way, way down the bottom when other countries were doing very, very badly. In this round, in this, what is this the second wave, third wave, whatever wave it is, they're getting absolutely massacred when other countries which have done much worse are are ticking along reasonably well i mean belgium is doing badly all the time so although it's not doing as badly now i suppose as it was but yeah, it's also arguably not a country so <laughs> well, i think you have to say it is a country but, but I, I don't have to say anything of the sort michael no absolutely i don't have to say anything of the sort no you don't have to this is absolutely true. And I think if I were to publicly exclaim that Belgium was not a country, a surprising amount of people would agree with me. It's, um, it's been a country for a while, Gary. I mean, it's been a country longer than Italy has been a country. Uh, and then you could perfectly... I mean, you may not be able to observe that Italy isn't a country either. Well, I mean, Michael, you say that, but by simply saying, no, it's not a country, 
then I erase that fact. It's been a state, shall we? Would you be happy with that? It's been in a state. (laughs) (laughs) Boom, boom. (laughs) (laughs) I might add in a little drum solo. Yeah, I think so. I think definitely that does add a little drum solo there. (laughs) All the good things, know the bad things. And uh, anyone who disagrees with that is opposed to saving lives, and that is a tragedy. I think she said it was the worst political failing. I'm not sure if she said of the COVID or of the period or, you know, of her life, and that it was a tragedy and that more hadn't been done. And as I heard it, I was really hoping that they'd stop and go, now, what particularly that has been done, Holly, do you not think went far enough? And not in general, like, the specific policy protocol didn't go far enough. Just because I'd like to see what her answer would have been. Yeah, she may have indeed have had an answer. Skeptical, but she might have. I mean, confused muttering and sort of off-key screaming is an answer. It's just not a good one. <laughs> you seem to have issues with the TD, this particular, with the deputy, I don't know. Karen's has a general sort of hallmark card generator thing to her. But she's a social democrat, so that's fine. Like that's that's what happens. She's and she's not in any way the more substantial of the social democrats who can actually do things. But like to stand there and to say this harebrained idea is um, kind of insulting. I think actually, I think I, I I will take offense for the politicians. Right. Okay. Like the the idea that there are people actively opposing uh, the saving of lives when you don't seem to have any actual plans it just reminds me of the isag thing and the zero covid doctors and you remember we, we, we went through some of the documentation and you get to the end of it and you're like that's not a plan that's a list of aspirations tied together there's no actual plan here yeah but they, they have this sort of tone of what well, if you don't do this you're killing people and you sort of go well if it's that important surely you'd sit down and do some fucking work on it then i think i, I think i'm actually just getting tired of this i, I think it's probably not karen at all It's just, I'm getting tired of this holier-than-thou, I actually have no idea what I'm talking about, spiel. Also, she was against Fergus O'Dowd, who I, uh, I don't want to defend Fergus O'Dowd. Who would? No one. (laughs) Fine man, fluent Irish speaker. And many people have met many of Fergus O'Dowd's personalities and say several of them are lovely. (laughs) But none of them talk to each other. Yeah, and there's not a great deal of consistency between them, but no. So, moving from that to something if anything, slightly less uh, impact on your life, Michael. The New York Times is having a bit of trouble. The New York Times seems to be intent on eating itself. The New York Times is just firing people from the left and the right pretty much at the drop of a hat now. Well, now, Gary... Just let two of their people go. The right... mm, People writing for the New York Times who who fit into the category of from the right. Yeah, I think we're talking unicorns there. Shall we say moderate? The odd sprinkling of moderate Republicans. Yeah, I think they are. They're 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 on their way out now. Now it's gotten to the point where I hear someone say that white privilege is not a useful concept. I just assume they're from the right because the <laughs> left has either purged those people or put them into a position where they won't speak because they'll get sacked. But then again, he did get sacked, so maybe he is from that position. Well, you know what? What it's he's either somebody if he's in a job, he's or she is in a job. It's they're probably from the, shall we say, the centre right, or if they're not in a job, then they may be from the left and they've been sacked. But they can still be from the left, but just unemployed. So this is about a guy called um, Donald McNeil. Now there was another guy fired from the Irish Times 
called Andy Mill. However, in Andy Mill's case... The, sorry, not the Irish Times. Sorry, the the uh, the New York Times. Now, the Irish Times, which would like to be, I'm sure, the enormously wealthy New York Times. New York Times, I thought, did you see there was a, there was a comment from within one of the... that there's a new generation, and this is... there's a perception that what's happening now is a, is a manifestation of this... The baton being passed to the new generation as the editorial board changes and the direction of the paper changes, and they're going to abandon. The phrase was, I think, archaic ideas like objectivity and reporting. Oh yeah, I think that was Barry Weiss. Was it not Barry Weiss just before her relationship with the New York Times ended? But no, this was this Barry Weiss was observing it, but Barry Weiss was unhappy about it. This person was saying this approvingly. Ah. archaic ideas like objectivity this that kind of it's very much very postmodern but you know this nonsense of, because of course all of these are basically just constructs of white privilege and patriarchy which are used in order to maintain the powerful in their power so basically what looks like happened here is two guys one called uh donald mcneil and another guy called andy mill were let go now in andy mill's case that was because of an issue with a podcast the New York Times had done called Caliphate, which was very highly lauded and was about um, ISIS. However, it turns out that one of the sources for that made some claims that couldn't be independently verified. And so Mr. Mill is on his way out because there's nothing the New York Times hates more than facts that are inconveniently revealed to be total horseshit. <laughs> so McNeil, however, he didn't do that. He was at... A, a, now this I found very weird. New York Times trip to Peru for high school students. The Independent never did that when I was in school. I don't ever remember something coming to the school saying, "Would you like to go to Peru with the Independent?" So I feel I feel cheated a little bit by that. But apparently, this is something the New York Times does. So he goes to this dinner, and there's students there, and. One of the students asked whether a classmate of hers should have been suspended for a video that that classmate had made when she was 12 years old in which she had used a racial slur. Yes. And in the words of Donald McNeil, to understand what was in the video, I asked if she had called someone else the slur or whether she was rapping or quoting a book title. In asking the question, I used the slur myself. So he's gone. He's dead now. The New York Times originally came out with a sort of, we're very disappointed, but this is clearly not going anywhere. And 150 of their own people put together a letter which said, we would very much like you to, uh, didn't say fire him. It just said, this is going to be a problem. And the creator of the 1619 project, which again, only won a Pulitzer for fiction, yeah. not history, yeah. uh, said that she would start individually calling every student on that trip to figure out what happened. Uh, so Donald decided to go or was sacked. Kind of unclear. I know this, I, I am not the first person to think this surely, but this, the racial slur they're talking about, I'm assuming we not know which one it is. And it's a very nasty word. And the, particularly in the United States, it carries with it a burden of historical aggression and violence associated with slavery and with the Jim Crow laws, etc. And therefore, it's a very bad word to use. But it's got to the stage, Gary, where it's been invested. It's not, it is absolutely not rhetorical to say that the word has now become magical and religious, that the utterance of this word, it has power in a way. 
I mean, the facile one that occurred to me before was like, you know, if you're talking for Harry Potter fans, saying uh, the name of he who must not be named. But I was watching recently, uh, uh, re-watching for the eighth time, Monty Python's Life of Brian. And you know that scene where all of the women get their false beards that go along to the stoning? And the guy is going to be stoned because he said to his wife, that piece of halibut was good enough for Jehovah. And the comedy involves the fact that every time so he says Jehovah, and then they start throwing stones, and the, the priest is there, and he's in his get-up, and he says, and he has a whistle, it's Brian Cleese, he says, nobody, nobody says and throws anything until I blow this whistle. Not even, and I want to be very clear about that, even if they do say Jehovah. Now, at the end, of course, it all ends rather badly for Brian Cleese, but it's very funny. But it, that's what it strikes me, this we have got, now got to that point. Or all you have are you roving bands of people with rocks in their hands, ready to throw, to stone to death, figuratively, anybody who says the name of Jehovah. Well, there is, I think, there is, it's now become sort of a totemic phrase. What I thought was interesting was part of the New York Times response. Uh, they said that they would not allow the usage of racist language regardless of, of intent. Which is a really interesting phrase, because the idea of racist language without intent on its own is is bizarre. But it also effectively means that New York Times reporters can't report on quite a lot of racial issues now, or anything that might imply certain words. Yeah, or at least if they're doing it, it has to be hashtags or asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Yeah, but we all know what they mean, Michael, and the essence of a word is its communication. So if we if we can look at it and we can tell what it is, it is effectively that word. Actually, in that sense, that is just another example of how it has become sacralized. In the same way as certainly observant Jewish people and, and devout Christians, when they write the word God, will not write G-O-D. They will write G-D. It has actually become quite funny because there's all this talk of blasphemic words and then you <laughs> you end up at the state of of like a Hasidic Jew. And it's just it's 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 like saying the name what is the Tetragamon the Tetragamon Tetragamon, isn't it? Which is the name of the name of the name of God. And which never must be named. You you talk about the Lord or Hashem or Adonai or whatever, but it's like that and they write that and it's now going to be that this well we, we know the the, the the form it takes. It takes the form that we say the N word. Now, it's weird. It used to be there was a debate about what kinds of bad language you could use on television. And we reached a point where gradually, after a certain point of time, in a certain kind of context, you could say anything. You could say the F word. Remember, we used to have the F word, and now we use the F word. The word that is most offensive is the C word. And you can still get a bit of trouble for that. But this has gone way beyond that. No, this this is effectively this is effectively religious now. It is no, it's not effect. It is actually religious, and I, I, the reason I say that is because we often talk like metaphorically. Oh, that's religious, or this is religious, or that's a political religion, and it's kind of analogous. Or this is. I, I was listening to a group of friends, uh, young people, uh, friends, and they're talking about it, and when the way they talked about it, it, there was a real sense that. By saying the word, by enunciating those syllables, you conjured something. Now, I I don't want to say this glibly in the sense that I'm very conscious 
that because of the historical context, etc., for many people, people of color, um, African-Americans and black Africans, the word carries a very nasty intent. And it is a nasty word. And as you say, Gary, the bizarre thing is to say that racist words can exist. But to give the word that much power, it seems to me, you know, Jonathan Hyde talks about in a different context, he talks the way that so much of policies that you see in modern universities in the United States and, and, and other institutions to like trigger warnings and microaggressions to protect people who feel they have been traumatized by some experience. This protects them. When, and Haidt makes the point that and Luke, and Greg Lugianoff had actually written about this before, and then Haidt himself wrote about it, the coddling of the American mind. They said, that actually, if you talk to people who are experts in treating post-traumatic stress disorders, or people who deal with people who suffer from trauma. This is the actual opposite, literally the opposite of what you want to do with people who have genuine trauma. You don't do this. This just makes the this makes the thing worse. And again, with this word, it's like to, you're now giving it more and more, investing it in this magical power, which must make it, therefore, the word far more powerful. And why would you do that? Why would you invest more power in something that only the only people are going to use it now are actual proper racists? And now you've and you've 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 turned it into this explosive device. I don't understand that. That's the thing. You, you, I mean, words have no innate meaning to them. They have what is effectively projected onto them. And if you keep building something up and up and up. In what I would imagine is is quite a well intentioned attempt sure. to to protect people. The problem is that you eventually build up. But here's here's a here's a point for you, Michael. The New York Times says that intent does not matter, and that any usage of the word is racist because the word itself is intrinsically racist. Okay, how many times, if you were to search the New York Times for that word, would you say it turns up right now? No. I, honestly, I have no clue. I would I would imagine it's a rare beast. 6,481 times. In what kind of time frame? Uh, let's see. The last one was February the 2nd of this year. And the first one is October 10th, 1851. This is the problem with a long archive. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I also, again, how can you say intent and context doesn't matter? I mean, we all know, and it's confusing for some people, old fogies, that for example, this is a word which is used all the time in the rap music, for example, and in the hip hop. It's a word that's used constantly. We hear it used constantly by African-American comedians, uh, actors, and in, in interactions between them between African-Americans, they use this word all the time. They seem to use it as a word of affection almost. Yeah, he's my N-word. So that's kind of, so if you can't quote that or refer to that. I would be very curious. I would really genuinely love to have a conversation with, you know, John McWhorter, the uh, the black uh, professor of linguistics in Columbia. Because he's a language guy, he's a words guy, and he's he knows quite a bit about African American language as well. But this particular, how what he thinks about it uh, as a word and the use of the word and how we should how what he thinks about the use of it, and, or the 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 injunction against any form of use of it, and stripping any context out of it as well. I, I would be curious. 
because he's, he's a man I think he's very interesting and generally intelligent commentator on these issues but I, I, I don't get it I would avoid using the word because I don't want to give offence or to hurt anybody's feelings and I don't want to go out looking for trouble like a man with a lamp so why would I say it I don't see the necessity but in this case do you remember the case in was in the professor was in, in who's teaching Chinese? Oh, Ni Hao. Yeah, and he got he got suspended. I didn't get sacked or anything because it was a big hoo ha afterwards. But he got suspended. And he was under investigation. He was complaint. He was complaint lodged against him because he used a word which sounded like this. I mean, if you have a word which cannot be used regardless of intent, unless you are determined to be one of the appropriate class of people, and any word that sounds like it is also problematic. That's um. That doesn't seem like a good thing. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's an odd thing, but there's I mean there is a thing here. Do you remember a, a New York Times editor was fired in January? A woman called Lauren Wolf, and she had said she tweeted out Biden landing at a, a particular airbase. I have chills and um, fired, just just gone. <laughs> and this does seem to be a thing that's happening with corporations, and I've no, started to notice it more and more now. It used to be. That if you said something that was seen as conservative, you would be sacked. And there was this sort of corporations are our friend thing, which I'm sure was a lovely new feeling for the left. Yeah. But now you've started to see conservative groups also launching complaints against things. Because I think they've realized that actually these companies aren't your friend at all. These companies will step on you if you're in the way. So yeah. we start complaining. And we can start trying to withdraw money. And we become a threat to their bottom line. They'll fuck you in the same way they fucked us. Sure. And I think that in places like the United States and maybe they say the United Kingdom, people on the centre-right conservatives are sufficiently organised and aware to do that kind of thing. I think the hope is something like that happening here. Well, the hope, I don't, know if it's a, I don't think it's a good thing anyway. I think this idea that we should be policing everybody's political opinions in order to make a decision whether or not we're going to buy... Kellogg's Rice Krispies or not Kellogg's because Kellogg, somebody from Kellogg's made a political opinion I don't like. I, I think it's really, this is not the way to a happy, a happy society. No, I mean, but it was also obviously going to happen that there would eventually be pushed back the other way and that the companies would just absolutely fold because why wouldn't they? they they've accepted the principle that they will fold under these kind of pressures. I think, however, it's actually, it is relatively a good thing for it to now go both ways. And it's it's not for any moral reason, it's this. If you have a situation where one person is just punching you repeatedly in the face and you do nothing, it's not good for society. But they're going to keep going because there's no reason not to keep going. If there are no consequences for them, well, why should they stop? But even if just very occasionally you sock them, it does give a bit of incentive to kind of go... This is not a like this is not a smart idea. We shouldn't be doing this. So even just on like a, a game theory, like a, a very simple reiterative of game, you'd expect to get some consequences onto both sides, and they're far more likely to stop. Yeah, I mean, if you're getting beaten up like one good knee in the balls, even in the middle of it, will make you think again. And I think if we're looking for a system which works over the long run, which is a system where none of this is happening. It actually needs to happen more broadly to get to that point. Yeah, I, I, I think the two things about that. The first thing is I think that one of the probably I think the most successful explanation of what happened with Trump was that a realization by a group of a uh, group of white voters that 
identity politics was the politics du jour and had been for quite some time from the left. And they thought, well, you know what? Well, if everybody else is playing identity politics, if you talk about game theory or public choice theory, well, then we should play it too. Why shouldn't we do that? And it wasn't about being racist. It wasn't about being anything against another group. But it was rather, well, everybody else is using their power in order to achieve something for themselves. Well, let's let's do that for us too. And they started. This, there was Trumpism, in a sense, was a form of identity. Was that group of voters adopting a form of identity politics and therefore and being successful at it? I think the problem with it is that well it's not the problem so much with the reality is it's much more unlikely it's more difficult for this to actually happen on both sides in any kind of serious way because there's a and i think this was a good thing on the right was the right different from the left in that since the oh, 60s and 70s anyway the, the left developed this idea that the the personal was political ultimately everything was political it wasn't just electoral politics and waiting around for elections to happen and budgets and whatever. Everything was political. Fat is political. Feminism is political. Sex is political. Everything is political. The conservative was always, no, we, we have to maintain a certain space in our society, a certain space in our civic life, which we keep away from, we keep politics out of that. Because that's where then citizens can meet and interact and be citizens together to be, be friends, have relationships without being alienated from each other because of their political opinions. And I think that's, well, I would think that's, I'm a conservative, so I think that is a good thing and I think it's right. The problem is that I think you lose an important insight of conservatism if you start to abandon that idea and say, okay, well, we're just going to have to invade the pitch as well. And we're going to politicize everything because then ultimately what you've done is, I, 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 I understand your point and I think your point is correct practically speaking but my concern is that you what you also end up doing is just you end up buying into this idea well everything is political and we what we end up is this completely politicized social structure and and while what you do is you 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 have an armistice because it's it's a bit like a nuclear war you both sides recognize the other side has the capacity to inflict pain on the other but you're not doing it because of principle anymore. You're just doing it because you're afraid of the other the other side's capacity to hurt you. I mean, I'm a big proponent of peace, truth, strength. Was it walk? What was it walk quietly but carry a big stick? I mean, if we ultimately want to get to a point where people remember that free speech as a philosophical concept argues that you should allow speech that you dislike in order to have a particular kind of society and it's more than just saying the government should not control speech directly but a much wider philosophical point about trying to take a a maximalist position to the idea of speech yeah well then that would be great but if the way to do that is to randomly start kneeing the person who's been punching you repeatedly for years well then that seems to be uh, the way to go yeah i think probably you're right and if the end result doesn't work, Michael. Well, then you—that really actually just changes nothing, other than making sure that the end result is terrible for everyone, as opposed to just terrible for a few. Because it's clearly already gone that way anyway. So, you know, I, I don't have that uh, desire for martyrdom that says die for your beliefs, so that people who don't hold them can do what they want anyway. Fair enough. Fair point. But the New York Times again. Yeah, it seems to be that. Why is this important 
for anybody why should anybody care i suppose it in a, in, a, in a broad sense it doesn't really matter to anybody over here it doesn't maybe even matter greatly to americans but it is it is the, the paper of record famously in the united states it has an international reputation and international reach and I suppose it's like all elite institutions. These, I suppose, these things we rot from the head down, and I suppose these are these are straws in the wind. It is still the premier English language newspaper of the world, regardless of any of its problems. And I think the point where we can say that things do not spread from America to Ireland is long since past. I mean, some of the things I've seen in Ireland, people do things that are directly imported from America. And don't even make sense in the Irish concept or in the Irish context, and people just repeating them without thought. Absolutely, and we saw that with Black Lives Matter. I mean, absolutely, just people picked up a model straight from the United States, dropped it in here with no sense of the the current cultural context of Ireland or the historical context of it. I mean, the one that I, Black Lives Matter is obviously the the one that most people will come to mind, but I think that you you can at least make an argument for certain aspects of that cause. But the one that actually really stuck in my mind was, do you remember we went through that period because America started talking about it, about taking down all the statues? Oh, God, yeah. And, and how we needed to do that to, to come to terms with our imperial history. And yeah, got, our, 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 our colonial history, yeah. And the Irish Times and everyone was writing articles about it. And no one actually seemed to realize that we had this debate before as a country. We had this after independence. And we had come to a particular set of understandings as to what would happen. There was no... And yet, because it was in America, we had to talk about it. And we had to talk about it as if it was a new, totally unknown thing, where anyone who was interested in it knew this had already happened. It, yeah, it, it, that's a very good point, because we went through what the Americans are going through now, in a sense, in the, in the 20s. And we made a choice. Okay, some of the stuff came down. Most famously, what was regarded as a rather not unattractive statue of Queen Victoria was first moved and then, then I think it was sold I think uh, to I think the city of Adelaide has it now but if you look at the city of Dublin the capital city uh, Leinster House is called Leinster House because the Dukes of Leinster lived there and it's on Kildare Street because the Dukes of Leinster were from Kildare and they were they're the heirs of Kildare you have up from just up from the Houses of Parliament you have uh, there's a statue of Archbishop Coining. You have the Royal Society, the, the Royal College of Surgeons, the Royal College of the Farms. You have the Royal Dublin Show, the Royal Dublin Society. You have the, the Royal Irish Academy. We made a decision not to get rid of those things. People, I, I've heard people say, kind of sarcastic, oh, the only thing they did was paint the post boxes. Well, yes, rather than go through this kind of orgiastic iconoclasm we said ah we'll paint the box box because that they'll be green so they'll be irish and even if it says v r or g r or e r on it because they were put in when victoria or george or edward was the sovereign that's okay we live with that some of the street names were changed some weren't actually a lot of the street names i mean there had been quite some quite a bit of name changing had happened even before independence but you still have George's Street and Cumberland and Hanover Street and Little Britain. There's actually Little Britain in in, in Dublin, which I thought was charming uh, after the conversation. So we had gone through this. We'd had a conversation at 27 about it. We said, eh, you know, okay, we've had a bit of a historical relationship with these people. But what's the point in 
just blowing everything up. And I mean, there was also part of a, you know, the best revenge is a life well lived. Yeah, which we we studiously avoided having for around 60 years, but there you go. But I do like that at the end of it, we went, we'll keep them, bar the really ugly ones. Yeah. We'll just, we'll, we'll ship those off somewhere, which I think is a very mature approach. We'll keep the good art. We'll keep the nice ones. Yeah, it's like a divorce, but you keep all the silver. And the nice friends. Yeah, and you just like melt down the tin. <laughs> but no, I, I think the point where... One thing that the Black Lives Matter thing did show to me is when I was looking at it in different countries, because it went to multiple different countries, some of which made sense and some of which really didn't. And actually, the American racial things don't make that much sense in America, let alone outside it. But it was seeing people in various different languages and in various different countries... Uh, say things like arms, you know, hands up, don't shoot, to unarmed police forces. Yeah, no, yeah. And also, by the way, something which came out afterwards, he never said even. Um, for anybody who's interested in going back and finding it, Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter on Blogging Heads, as they describe themselves, the black guys in Blogging Heads actually do a very, very interesting deconstruction of that particular case uh, and a number of other similar situations, so if you actually wanted to inform yourselves about what's happening on this. And they're actually, I would recommend them, they're really, they're very interesting. A couple, uh, McWhorter is a linguist. Uh, Glenn Lowry is a very prominent uh, economist teaching these days, I think in, it's not Cornell, it's one of the Ivies anyway. Um, he's taught all over, the, all over the gaff. He was in the Reagan administration. He's been a conservative. He's been a liberal. He's conservative again, I think, these days. But they're worth listening to. On the um, the George Floyd thing, did you see the latest movement in that case? Only happened yesterday? No, what's happened? So they want, the, the, the uh, state prosecutor wants them to reinstate a third degree murder charges. Right. They had gone up to murder two, hadn't they? That was the, the side of it. And now they're they're asking for a judge to allow them to go back down, which is not good before the case. No, it's not. I mean, I actually, I meant to go back and check. I remember the preliminary autopsy reports, but I don't actually, I don't know if I ever got round to reading the full autopsy report. So, so third degree murder would be, um, it would be unlawful killing. It would be murder, but it would, it's quite similar to manslaughter, really, actually. They'll have to demonstrate recklessness. Yeah, it's going to be quite fun for them. It's going to be tricky. We talked about it at the time, particularly when we, and we confirmed afterwards that was the case, that the regulations given to the police force actually stipulate this as a restraining move. First degree would be premeditated, I think, cold-blooded murder. Third degree is effectively manslaughter. And I'm not actually sure what the technical, like where second degree would fall, um, but we would normally understand it. Yeah. I, no, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think at the time I had... <laughs> I had read up and out sufficiently that I, I did know, but it has gone from me now. I, I think what it is, is that second degree is, so you remove the planning, but it is an intentional killing. I think that the thing was that you, you were conscious, that you were, you were reckless, you behaved in a way that was reckless and that a reasonable person would have understood it to be reckless. That, that, that this kind of, that this behavior would lead. You're right. I, yeah, I think it was a reckless disregard for human life. So we will see what happens with that. But that was, yeah, the statue thing, I think, for me, was just a sort of, we will literally take anything the Americans are doing, and the cultural contagion just spreads here without even adaption that makes sense. We just do it. As you have told you before in the story, I was, I was talking to uh, uh, I, uh, a young uh, 
staffer from the the House of Representatives in the U.S. This is a few years ago, and they were on a fact finding tour in South Africa, and there was a number of different from all the different caucuses, and there were a number of prominent African American politicians. And one of the guides was going around, and he kept referring to whites and coloreds and and blacks, and it's a phrase kept saying. And I don't know. I'm sure it was in a moment of tiredness and discombobulation and jet lag. This started to irritate one of the uh, members of the caucus, who eventually corrected him and said, "I'm sorry. We prefer black. We prefer African American." She objected to the use of the word black in South Africa, and to which the the guy, who I think himself was uh, a black South African, looked in genuine puzzlement, as if, "What? We're not American." I'm sorry, but I don't quite what there is. There is, I think, a famous interview of a an American sports presenter talking to a British athlete who was black, and just keeps calling him African American. He just keeps saying, "I'm not African American," and the look of ever growing confusion on the guy as he just tries to get through the sentence, and the guy just keeps telling him, "I'm I'm not African American." I, yeah, I remember that. He said, "What the hell am I supposed to say?" What what what? And they sort of said, "Is there a new is there a new phrase? Is there a new what what?" Yeah, that was the, I remember that. That was kind of funny. I was half expecting him to panic and just call him coloured. <laughs> of course, person of POC is now a phrase which is used. Yeah, but that's very different than coloured. Yes, it is. Apparently, it is actually very different. And one will one will one is safe, and one will get you sacked. It must be really tiresome to have to live in a country where you have to care about things like that and like fashion trends effectively. I think you live in a country where you have to care about that. And I think you're going to have to care about it more. So on the, um, on the, Michael wanted to talk about uh, our place in the new European pecking order, which is an interesting article, particularly where, who it came from and where it was. But I wanted to mention just before we do that, Michael, that there is a, an article in the Irish Times and it's by Pat Leahy and Naomi O'Leary. And I know uh, reporters do not generally pick their headlines, although they actually do sometimes do so, and they will often suggest headlines. But uh, I loved it because you can basically look at the headline, and it's as if one author wrote each part of it. Because Nomi o- O'Leary is... Um, I saw her the other day, and she was saying that if you look at the European vaccination rates, and you look at who has received both doses, UK is no longer, you know, totally leading the pack, and, you know, Europe is doing much better than people would think, which totally ignores the fact that the UK is deliberately going for a maximisation of the first dose strategy and is not propaganda, but is, um, is it, technically it's paltering, which is a fantastic word. No one uses, but we really should. To palter is to uh, t- say things that are perfectly honest, but in a way that is designed to be dishonest. So it is to be dishonest by using truth. But the, the headline is this. EU handling of COVID has had lots of lows, but critic, critics ignore things it got right, which I like to think Naomi O'Leary postulated. Yes. The subheading, which I think Pat Leahy may have been involved in, was, perhaps most importantly, the pandemic is a lesson to the EU to stick to things it's good at. Yeah, you could read that in many different ways now, Gary, I'm afraid. There are those who would say that that's an injunction for the EU to stick at doing virtually nothing at all. But I, I can just see... Pat Leahy just standing there looking at the finished article going, I just think it needs some changes. Mm. Because Naomi O'Leary is pretty shameless. And it's actually the last while, like, 
she's always been like this when she's been talking about the EU, like this bizarre view of the EU. But the last while, as the EU has come under more pressure for the vaccine thing, I think she's just gotten worse. Or it's just coming out more. I don't know if you remember, or you've read it, or see, there was a book called uh, True Primary Colours, which was later made on made into a into a not a bad movie, with um, Emma Thompson playing the first lady, uh, the candidate for first lady, and the the, the uh, John Travolta playing the candidate. And it was written by it was, it was published anonymously. It was written by Klein, I think, who was an advisor. He was inside it in that in that thing and it's based on the clinton the clinton campaign and there's a phrase that they use in it which here at one stage one of the one of the campaign or the campaign brain says oh my god you've caught t- galloping tb and the principal said what do you mean tb true believerism and i think that, that that's what she has she's a case of when it comes to the eu it's a galloping case of tb she's a true believer when you said um primary colors for some reason it just reminded me of um a joke about a, an all-white production of the colour purple. An all-white production of the colour purple. That would make a lot of sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think we should wait for it. So, but Michael's article, is, I'll put a link to this in the bottom, but it's called Our Place in the New European Pecking Order is Now Clear. Dublin is a prisoner of Europe's unwinnable battle with Britain. What I thought was interesting is the guy who wrote it is a researcher at the Wilfred Martin Centre, which is the official think tank of the EPP, the European People's Party. Yeah, absolutely. Fine Gael is a member of, but is also like not a Eurosceptic party. Like It's not Europe of conservatives and reformists. It's not the ECR. It is not. And Wilfred Martins was absolutely, he was a former prime minister of, uh, of Belgium and certainly not in in any way, shape, or form a Eurosceptic. And the the think tank itself is not a Eurosceptic uh, think tank. But it's it's an I think a really interesting article. It's very different to the kind of language we normally hear in the Irish Times talking about this issue. I mean, just to give you a, a sense of it, the chorus of solidarity with Europe, which was Ireland's entire entire Brexit negotiating strategy, now seems oddly out of date. Now, isn't that a, that's a good line, Gary? It just it nothing to do with the, the but as an as an this is his assessment of our strategy, which is a big word for what it was. Our entire Brexit negotiation strategy was solidarity with Europe. I just thought I was thinking of the all white version of the color purple, and just thinking of how short a film that would have been. <laughs> he here the language he's talking about. He's talking about the the political fallout of the European Union self inflicted vaccine debacle. Uh, which should not be understood. He he describes this as Brussels vaccine Harry Keary will pass. In reality, it is only a harbinger of Ireland's much bigger problem, namely that Dublin is now a prisoner of Europe's unwinnable battle with Britain. Now, I just want to contrast that, Gary, just very briefly, with the Irish Times' own view on the vaccine rollout. Um... The Irish Times view on the Europe's vaccine rollout better than going it alone. Some of the criticisms of the European EU approach are valid, but most most are not. Um, here's one for you. See what you think of this. Um, the long-term approach m- must be right, certainly, but the quicker rollout must be certain right, but. Must be right, certainly, but the quicker the rollout, the fewer people die. It would be perverse to think that a roll slow out is positive. 
At the same time, it is unarguable that the EU was right to use its bargaining power to strike deals on members' behalf. An alternative would have been an intra-European dogfight, the largest and wealthiest members emerging with the biggest stock. This way, the most vulnerable people in each EU state will receive the vaccine first. The slower model timeline is due to a deeper model of scrutiny applied by the EMA. So are you familiar with the concept of a Martin Bailey? I am. They are they are busily building a Martin Bailey here. But explain to the good people. For the listener, a Martin Bailey castle is basically a two-tiered a defensive structure. So it's a castle with a um and which is on a raised platform uh, called a mot and it has a walled courtyard and uh, then there is an external wall around it. Now the reason that is of relevance here is there's a debating technique called a Motten Bailey which is where you will state a position you can't really defend and when attacked you'll fall back to a similar sounding position that is much easier to defend. So when you you say that to me Michael it reminds me of during the start of Covid when people were saying um, they're talking about the uh, Wuhan viral lab and they're saying, is it possible that something got out of that? And the def- the pushback against it was that it was not a bioweapon, which sounds similar, but is actually not the same point because the lab could have been storing animals, could have been anything. And if that had gotten out, not a bioweapon. So it sounds like you're, defend- you're attacking the central point, but it's actually a different point entirely. So I would suspect what's happening here is if you were to push back on the idea that the EU had to do this, they would fall back to the idea of, well, European countries had to do this together. Which sounds like saying the EU had to do it, but is actually a very different thing. Because we know from the Inclusive Vaccine Alliance that was negotiating with companies before the EU that European countries could have done this without actually involving the EU. The EU does not have to be involved to have a pan-European vaccination attempt. Or, you know, it didn't, maybe not pan-European, but only involving those countries which were interested in getting it done uh, very quickly, or those who wanted to do it at a slower pace, or where th- wherever their area of interest was. So I think it's, it's, it's largely a nonsense argument, because if you push it back, you can just go, well, the EU, where the EU was involved, it seems to have failed. The idea of European countries coming together and negotiating in either a full or partial block to avoid competing against each other. Yeah, sure. That has upsides, it has downsides, but also has upsides. But it's not the same point. It isn't. And there, there are three, three observations I made in that. First one is, this way the most vulnerable people in each, each EU state will receive the vaccines first. I don't see any evidence of that. If you look at the vaccine rollout across the EU, there's absolutely no consistency. I think the the poorest country in the EU is the is God. I'm going to show my ignorance now. Bulgaria, Bulgaria joined with Romania, didn't it? Bulgaria is, has, I think, the lowest rollout of the vaccine, and I think Bulgaria, along with Romania, is the one of the poorest countries in the EU. So, and if you look at the the rollout, you you have poorer countries and richer countries. Some are better, some are worse. But there's absolutely no consistency in the sense that that all these all the states are are doing the same. And we know, well, at least we know. I say it was reported from sources within by Der Spiegel and the Politico that some of the states, specifically, did not take certain of the vaccines. 
say particularly Pfizer, because they were more expensive and they couldn't afford them, or they they made the, they made a decision that they were too expensive, and also infrastructural issues regarding storage maybe as well. Although I'm skeptical about that, this problem. Uh, as a friend of ours pointed out, this problem about storage is for the last 50 years, people have been, AI men have been going around to farms to inseminate cows, carrying semen at temperatures below what is required for the storage of the vaccine. And there hasn't been a great problem. The, the, the storage thing, I think, is a bit of a red herring. However, anyway, so I, first of all, I don't think that there is actually any evidence that it's necessarily true that the vulnerable people in the poorest countries are getting it at the same rate as in every other country. Secondly, the statement, you know, it's inarguable that the EU was right to use its bargaining power to strike deals. Well, as you pointed, the alternative would have been an inter-European dogfight. No, as you point out, it wouldn't have necessarily been. We saw Germany, Italy, France and the Netherlands going ahead and buying 400 million vaccines cooperatively. There's no reason why Ireland couldn't have, or couldn't or wouldn't have joined in that. Or Ireland might have decided, you know what? Since this is a competence which is reserved for us, we can do a deal with whoever we want. We might have gone in with our nearest neighbour, the United Kingdom, and done a deal with them. The EU didn't use its bargaining power to strike a deal. It used its bargaining power not to strike a deal. That's the whole fucking point. They refused to strike a deal. They went on and they waited and they waited and they penny-pinched. And they came out and said, well, we got it cheap. Yeah, we got it cheap, but you got it three months later than everybody else. When Be Benjamin Netanyahu was talking about this, he was at a conference recently, I think we might have adverted to it in the last one. Netanyahu said, I told the minister, go out and get the vaccine. Do not quibble about the price. Whatever it costs tomorrow, it'll cost more in four months' time or whatever, because there's going to, the demand is going to be up and people are going to be desperately looking. Get it now. Get enough. He got on the phone, he went to the president of Pfizer, him with the two legal guys there, and they did a deal. The EU was wrong to strike the deal that it did. It didn't, or rather, it failed radically to do this. So it's not, it is not unarguable to say this. It's just nonsense to say this. They were, they, it was a ranking competence. They got it wrong. But here's, here's another point. They got it wrong for Ireland. And maybe that is the issue, that they didn't get it wrong for everyone. So because we had to negotiate with all of the countries as one, with no ability to actually do anything kind of bespoke for different countries, you had a situation where some countries were going, we will spend literally anything on this. But you had other countries going, we don't want to spend that much, or we're comfortable waiting to Q2, Q3 to use some of the cheaper vaccines for that reason. And because you had to get those people together, you ended up with this thing that didn't really suit anyone. Whereas if we had been able to do that in you know, one or two blocks, you could have had a situation where some of the Western European countries went a certain way, they went more expensive but faster, and some of the Eastern European countries did what they wanted to do. And everyone would have gotten what they wanted, and it would have been better. But we didn't do that. And we didn't get that. And now all we're hearing is, okay, it seems to not have gone great. But compared to this hypothetical situation, which is the worst possible outcome we can imagine, is it that bad? And you have to say, well, that didn't fucking happen, did it? And it's not what necessarily would have happened either, is it? And it's kind of suspicious that you have to go that far to make yourself look good right now. One of the things, one of the consequences of the choices that were made, at least, 
as was reported again by Der Spiegel and Politico and, and other newspapers since then, is that choices were made with reference to the political balance and issues within the EU, which were nothing to do with the vaccines themselves. So when Pfizer come along and say, well, we can give you another 200 million, according to their speaking political, they well, well, no, we can't really do that because, you know, the French, we should be using the French. We know the Sanofi, they bought all these hundreds of millions of Sanofi, which just are not on the table. And that was directly as a consequence of the fact that it was to be done as an EU project. Now, what Boris Johnson, the third, the incompetent idiot of the failed state that is the United Kingdom, did he appointed a woman from the private state and said, okay, make an assessment of the of the vaccines on the basis of how they're developing, where the, their current status, their rollout, their, their their effectiveness and all of those, and come back and make tell me what we should buy. She did that and they seem to have done it rather more successfully because they made it, shall we say, apolitically. Well, you know, you, people say, I know they bought a lot of AstraZeneca because that was British. Well, it's, it's also Swedish, but it, it's also, a, they came in early and they got it worked. So I think it, it's not looking like a bad decision. On the French thing, that the French look like they were able to sway things to their hand. Let's say if we had something like the Inclusive Vaccine Alliance and Ireland had become involved in that and France had started throwing its weight around. The other members could have simply went, well, we'll negotiate without you. But that's not possible in a European-wide trading bloc. Yeah. Because you can't get rid of them. And you can't say, well, we'll just do it on your own. So you either accept the compromise and you basically go against us. Or, or you, I mean, you don't go against us, you come in with us. Or you go against us and we'll just, we'll spend more. That's one thing. The second thing I want to mention is that intelligent people pointing out that the EU got the vaccines for very cheap is my new pet hate. Because you look at them and you're sort of like, you are too smart to not realise how much money we're spending on this. We could have paid 20 times what we are paying and it wouldn't have fucking mattered. Yeah. It is so expensive to sustain the state we are in now. There is basically no price we would not practically pay to get out of this. Which is why I think the countries that were uh, were wanted to get it for much cheaper are less impacted, have much less social uh, supports in place, and, and don't have a lot of those costs. But this sort of, oh, we, we saved like 200 million on the initial cost for you. And you're like, we're spending half a billion a fucking month on one payment. Back in the day, without going out and sort of ploughing this this field all over again, just I want to say, Sam Bowman commenting about this at the beginning of this whole process. Like Sam Bowman said, "Listen, when you look at the costs, look at the social costs, but also the the exchequer costs. Pay anything, get it done, get it done, get them bought, get them done as quickly as possible, because whatever you're paying for this is going to be worthwhile." And as you said. When, we, when you're paying over a hundred million a week in PUP payments, the cost of vaccinations in a population of five million people just it, it's it's nonsense. Now, it, the Times also goes on to say that uh, in Denmark, early preparation and impressive logistical coordination resulted in three point five percent of people having been vaccinated already. 
Yeah, wow. As a look at the UK figures. France, whose rollout has been ill-prepared and hesitant, is just at 1.5%. Contrasting fortunes of those two EU states suggest that insufficient supply is less of a problem than banned domestic management. And yet, maybe incorrectly, we do see reports in papers across Europe that people that the, the rollout is actually being affected by the awareness that if they if they were actually to ramp it up to the position that they might like to be at, that they would reach a point. And that was either in January or February. At this point, because of the problems with AstraZeneca and problems with Pfizer and others, the rollout, that they would have actually ended up having a lacuna where they'd have to effectively have to stop vaccinating because they didn't have the resources. So I don't think that's even true. 3.5%. Three, so I'm not going to compare that to Israel because that would be unfair. I'm not going to compare that to Britain because that would also be apparently unfair. America. America under Donald Trump, which... We were told the COVID thing over there, it's out of control. There's nothing stopping it. You, apocalypse, basically, Michael. Total ineptitude from the administration. Barely a functioning government. In the time it's taken us to get 3.5%, they've done over 7%. And that was always the weird thing. Operation Warp Speed, which is a hilarious name, I will admit, mm-hmm. was actually going quite well. Now, the Biden administration has removed the guy who was overseeing it, so hopefully there won't be any sort of, of issue there. But it was working exceptionally well. And it's, it's you know, like those problems when someone loses and then talks about how inept their opponent is. Like Hillary Clinton when she lost to Donald Trump, and they're like, he's an idiot, he's got no skills, he's just, he's shit. And you sort of go, but he still beat you. So what does that say about you? Yeah. And we've had four years of America is a failed state. It can't do anything. It's all this. And the EU has, and the Irish government, and uh, Irish TDs individually have been very happy to lean into that. But if that's all true, and they're still doing twice as well as we are, even including the fact that America is geographically a massive country, there's a ton of issues with distribution across America just because of the size of it. And they're doing twice as well as we are. Better than twice as well as we are, on an average. Kind of kind of doesn't reflect well in our government, does it? No, I mean, I just want to quote, just moving away from the, the Times and the issue of the, of the vaccine, but onto the article uh, written uh, by this guy from the Wilfred Martins. And I'm saying that because the, I'm putting that in the context. This is a, an e, a, a the, the popular party's think tank in Europe. This is not a, an anti-EU. EU uh, organ, he says, talking about Britain, lacking the centralizing and often suffocating state control prevalent in the EU. Britain is already proving more agile than Brussels would ever have imagined. In part, Britain's Europe's vaccine program breakdown is driven by its constant comparison to Britain, comparisons that will spread to almost every conceivable policy area in the decade to come. He goes on to say, in the middle of this unimitable battle stands Ireland, grown used to the EU limelight afforded by Brexit. The Emerald Isle does not know in what direction solidarity blows in 2021. EU, Mitral Martin's view that the mistakes were made by the EU in threatening to invoke Article 16 on the Northern Ireland Protocol is the nearest Dublin has ever come to substantive criticism of Brussels in its nearly 50 years of EU membership. One of his central points here is that the speed and the facility in which the article was invoked tells us all we need to know about our pecking order in Europe. That frankly, we are way down. We talk. We like to talk about punching above our weight and we talk about how successful we are in Washington and our diplomatic efforts there. Reality is, as far as he's concerned, 
at the moment within the EU, we are way down the pecking order and we need to accept that because if we don't accept it, then there's nothing we can do to change that. So he said, for all its dreams of Europe, Ireland's physical presence in EU's institutions is at historic lows. No coherent plan exists for improving foreign language learning in schools. While central to Brexit negotiations, Ireland's domestic political debate has become increasingly detached from Brussels realities, as the, resig the forced resignation of Commissioner Hogan in 2020 showed. And he, ultimately the point he makes is that what we need to do is to recognise and get over this weird thing that I don't know where it came from. Was it, I know Brexit and all that, but this Anglophobia that we've started to see in the Irish Times, but not just in the Irish Times, across the mainstream media and in RT and in our politics. We have to get over that. Britain is still our nearest neighbour. We still have a land, share a land border. We still have political institutional issues about the North. And it is still a very, very substantial trading partner of ours. And he says, the economic battle between the EU and Britain is only beginning. The only viable strategy for Ireland is to play both sides. And I think there's a lot of, that, to me anyway, that the man is talking is a rock of sense. I don't disagree with most of what he writes. What I find interesting is who is saying this and what his position is. So for someone in the, the EPP to come out and say that Ireland has an overly fawning relationship towards decisions made in the EU. Again, it's not the ECR. It's not a group that's in any way Eurosceptic. So like, that doesn't bode well. And I, I know we were talking about this during the Brexit process, Michael, that when Britain goes, one of the major things we'd lose is a person willing to stand up and do the things that we weren't willing to do because they didn't give a shit if people liked them. So they would stand up and just go, we're just, we're just going to veto that. So Ireland could sit back and go, God, isn't, ah, oh, they're terrible lads. Like if it, if they weren't here, I mean, we'd be totally behind this, but like, it's not going true. So let's go do something else for a while. Like we know, for example, issues like around tax tax harmonisation and VAT and other all sorts of tax issues that the Brits stood. No, no. As long as the Brits were there, we knew we didn't have to worry about that. No matter how much the French were salivating and desperate to get this through, the minute the Brits were gone, it's back on the table, and we can say, "Oh no, well, you know, we have our veto." Well, we'll see how much of a veto we have as Michael, time we goes can't on. Even we can't even trust all Irish MEPs to vote against classing Ireland as a tax haven. Yeah. Which, regardless of <laughs> whether or not that's true, you fucking vote against it. That's the deal. I would have thought so. I would have thought that was the least you could expect from your representatives in Europe. And you don't do what Barry Andrews did and accidentally vote for it. <laughs> and then when you're asked why you voted for it, say that was a mistake. Because it's, it's better to be thought malevolent than hilariously incompetent. Why did you? Oh, oh, I'd forgotten about the Barry Andrews thing. Barry Andrews is not is not a stupid man. No, no, no. I'd be the first to tell you that. Um, now that was not kind. Anyway, <laughs> it wasn't wrong, but it wasn't kind. Anyway, uh, you'll put the link to that article in 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 the oh, yeah, uh, yeah. in the thing. I think I'd recommend anybody to read it. I think the the man's talking a lot of sense, and I would hope that we could lose our blinders about this. I don't think anybody serious in Ireland is talking about leaving the EU. We're not 
I don't think in a position like the UK is to make that kind of choice. I think if the chance ever get out to get out of the Euro, now that's a whole different subject. Uh, again, I have no confidence that would ever happen, but there you go. Why, why would we not want to be attached to a currency, Michael, which has seen a glorious decade of stagnation? Yeah, a currency which did us all sorts of favours. So we have what? We have 13 MEPs, Michael, do we? So just, just, just on the fawning attitude towards towards Europe thing here. We have 13 uh, MEPs. When that vote on whether or not we should be formally classed as a tax haven came up at the end of January hmm. in the European Parliament, all of the five Finnegalers voted against it. Because why wouldn't you? Yeah. Billy Keller voted against it. Because why wouldn't you? Now, three people abstained. Four people voted in favour of it. So of 13, we have seven who are kind of unsure about where Ireland falls as a tax haven. Something which, again, doesn't matter if it's true or not, you vote against it. (laughs) Because you're elected by the country and it wouldn't be good for the country to be formally classed as a tax haven. Something I like to imagine was explained to these people by their advisors, presumably through the use of puppets. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, to be actually classed as a tax haven would be a very, very serious thing indeed for us. I mean, it would be bad news, Irene. So whether or not they fully understand it, or maybe they don't care. Maybe they think that all that will do is precipitate the crisis of the capitalist system that will lead to the glorious revolution of the proletariat. And the oncoming of the utopian social government. I don't know. Maybe. Actually, my, my favourite thing, just, just to close, about the Barry Andrews thing. He said it was an accident that he voted against the, the resolution. Or sorry, he voted for the resolution. You would think at which point he would say, I had meant to resolutely say that Ireland was not a tax haven. And instead he said, I had actually meant to abstain. Wow. Well done, Barry. Take the strong point. At which point you're like, why even fucking bother? <laughs> Where are you going with this, Barry? Hmm. I, I'm, a, you know, that's that's just my old-fashioned nationalism, Michael. That I expect elected politicians of the country to not vote to actively fuck the country. Ah, that's just parish pump politics. I mean, yes, Michael, I'll admit it is parish pump politics. But at the same time, Kerry, it's almost like you care more about the well-being of people in Ireland than the people in Bulgaria. I don't know how you can maintain that moral position. That's just wrong. Vague understanding of the idea of circles of empathy. <laughs> yeah okay well, as in i had someone explain it to me once and i was like yeah you know that makes sense again i imagine with love puppets you know i haven't had enough explained to me with puppets none of us have you know it's a bit glove puppets and custard they're two things that go out of your life after a certain point in your in your 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 growth and i and i think it's sad i'd like more glove puppets and more custard in my life without those it's just despair and suicide well, basically, yeah. Anyway, I think that would, on that, again, on that uh, typically happy and upbeat note, I think we'll draw a veil over this and we will return on the Wednesday. If you're complaining about things not being happy and upbeat, the phrase put a veil over it, I'm pretty sure is a reference to a corpse. I'm pretty sure it is too, but I didn't say, <laughs> but, at least I didn't say, let's put, put, let's put pennies on the eyes and go on. Leave it for the ferryman. I wonder if anyone else noticed that over the hundreds of times you've said that and complained about me saying something about death. (laughs) And I've let it go up to now. (laughs) But enough was enough, Michael. (laughs) You couldn't let it go. 
I took like 300 episodes out. <laughs> yeah, well. Anyway, I, I have to go to bed now and read some Kierkegaard just to cheer myself up. So, as I said, we will be back on Wednesday. So mind yourselves and wash your hands. We'll talk to you then. All the best.